NFR Extra follows all your favorite cowboys, interviews legends of rodeo, and talks to the best of country music. Follow Nevada Caldwell, Ryland Bentley, and Steve Godert every week as they delve deep into the stories behind the road to gold in Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo. It's revealing, comedic, and sometimes emotional. Find it on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. NFR Extra, Episode 77. While Charlie Daniels is no longer with us, he is still felt throughout the NFR with his voice and music and the people he's touched. Daniels has been recognized in the National Finals Rodeo's iconic Sunday performance otherwise known as Memorial Night. Charlie himself has performed many times that Sunday performance, remembering cowboys that have passed, expressing his love for rodeo. There have been tributes far and wide recognizing Mr. Daniels since his passing. And today, we reflect with his longtime manager, David Corlew. Before we do that, here is NFR Rewind with Jeff Metters and Butch Knowles from the Cowboy Channel. Round number five of the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, the Texas edition from Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. Tough enough to wear pink night. It was a fun go around. You ever seen the, some stars emerge, some young stars emerge? Really a great first five rounds of the NFR. Yeah, it was really good. You know, in round number five, they always bring the very best horses and bulls out in this performance. We used to call it the TV pin because we only televised one performance back then. Now, they're every night, but this is the very best, and they didn't disappoint. No, you had the Bareback Horse of the Year matched up with the 2019 Bareback Riding World Champion, Clayton Bigelow versus Top Flight. It was a really good matchup. Clayton gets the best of it. He also wins around 89 points. Yeah, you can see Top Flight get set up right there in that jumping and kicking. Bigelow got tapped. I mean, that was so cool. Good to see Clayton. He's waking up. He placed 94 last. Again, last. Great ride. We had co-champions on the steer wrestling side of things. Jace Melvin was in there with a 3-9. I was tickled for Jace. You know, he's kind of struggled a little bit on a couple steers. Drew a good one and finished it. But how about Matt Reeves? Trying to win his first world title. He made a big step in the right direction. Yeah, split that round. Moves back into the number one spot in the world. Team roping. Boy, you got some world champions in here. Clay Smith and Jade Corkle. Yeah, you know, Jade's been a little quiet, in my opinion. For a guy like Jade Corkle, he fixed it. Great run. They won the round. Saddle Bronc riding. White Casper had a record-setting regular season, and he came in number one, bucked off last night, but he bounced back in round number five. Yeah, round number five, he had onion ring, and, you know, a really tough round. And to win it, he was, what, 91 and a half? Great ride, and that was exactly what he needed to pull off. Hunter Heron has not been at the Wrangler NFR since 2016. He gets a go-round win in round five. But you and I have always talked about Hunter Heron. It's a matter of time before he wins his first world title. He never pulled it off. But he's have to win three more rounds before he leaves this field. Well, speaking of world titles, how about Haley Kinsel trying to win her third straight? And uh, for the second night in a row, she and sister were dominant. Yeah, what a battle between she and Brittany Tanazi. You know, every single night, Brittany will come out, take the lead. Haley follows right behind her. But she had the best ground to work with. Absolutely the quickest run we've seen yet this week. Yeah, that race for the world title, though, is far from finished. Ty Wallace for the second night in a row. He's your winner in the bull riding, 91 and a half. Boy, Ty Wallace, he's really finding his right groove at the right time, isn't he? And this one was not tricky. Couple chains up in the middle of that ride. Wallace wins another round again. Five rounds down, five rounds still remain. Buckle up your seatbelts. The second half is coming up. Round number six tonight on the Cowboy Channel and RFD TV. Cowboy Christmas, the Wrangler NFR's only official gift show, is open daily at the Fort Worth Convention Center through December 12th. Cowboy Christmas is no ordinary Western shopping fest. You'll find hundreds of exhibitors with the most unique Western apparel, art, furniture, jewelry, and so much more. If you need it, you can find it here. There's something for everyone at Cowboy Christmas, and admission is free. Get more at NFRExperience.com. Cowboy Christmas, we're all in, in Texas, and it's all here.
Hey, y'all, I'm Cody Johnson, and you're joining us right here on NFR Extra. David Corlew's friendship with Country Music Hall of Famer Charlie Daniels has endured across a million miles of hard touring from Nashville in the late 60s to the new millennium. The Charlie Daniels Band have performed for presidents, soldiers, hippies, and farmers with extraordinary professionalism and musicianship. And just like the long-haired country boy, Corlew is a firm believer and supporter of the United States military. David sits down with us to share why he was blessed to guide the career of the late Charlie Daniels. Mr. David Corlew, we want to roll out the red carpet and welcome you to NFR Extra, sir. Welcome. Well, thank you guys. Uh, I don't know if I'm worthy of a red carpet, uh, just allowing me to to get on on here with you guys and chat a little bit about uh, our hero. Uh, that's uh, that's good for me. Good stuff. Well, Thanks. you're attached to Charlie Daniels, and we're getting ready to find out. I there's they always say right. I'm just going to give an example of being married and stuff like that. There's always the behind every you know behind every great man. There's a, there's you know a great woman, wife, whatever. How about partner, right? Teammate, something like that. And for what people are getting ready to find out is, while Charlie, <clears throat> without a doubt, is greatness. I think they're going to find out a lot about you being attached to that and what also makes that and part of all the other parts that make Charlie Daniels band and you're a big part of that. Well, I, I appreciate it. I don't, uh, you know, he, he blazed a trail for a lot of us. He took us in, uh, you know, we were a bunch of rogues basically, uh, in the early seventies. And, and when he put the band together and, and started hiring us one by one and, and, uh, Obviously, that went through many transitions, and we saw a lot of people come and go. We lost a lot of brothers and sisters uh, along the way. But uh, you know, and you turn around forty-seven years later, and uh, we've we've kind of we've blazed through life. Charlie used to say, "Like a hot Texas wind, uh, it just it just seemed like it it went so fast." And uh, last night, when I saw that they honored Charlie and you guys were kind enough to put uh, Charles Edward Daniels up there. It was so cool. And my wife said to me, Charlie, uh, to be honored, <clears throat> to be honored by Cowboys was, was a dream. And I'm going to jump in here and say that uh, years ago in the seventies, in the early seventies, uh, Toy Caldwell Marine, uh, who wrote all the great Marshall Tucker songs, Can't You See?, Searching for a Rainbow. He was the he was the composer, writer, and the brilliant guitar player of Marshall Tucker Band. And he uh, he came he showed up backstage one night and he had an NFR jacket on, but it was like a cloth jacket. It wasn't like the nice jackets that you guys make now. This was and it was a jacket that Larry Mahan had given him. And Charlie and I kind of like coveted it. We just like wanted it. It's like, where did you get that toy? And he goes, man, I met Larry Mahan last night or somewhere. I don't know where it was, but you know, and, <clears throat> and toy, I think had gone to the national finals in Oklahoma city. And so that night when Charlie and I were on the bus and we were having some drinks and I said, man, you think we'll ever get to go to the national finals? And he said, let me tell you something, son. He said, one day we're going to get right in the middle of it. And, uh, uh, damn sure did. <laughs> we damn sure did. <clears throat> it was. Uh, when, sorry, go ahead, Steve. Go ahead. When was the first national finals that you guys that you guys went to? Uh, the first national finals I went to, I had actually met Roy Cooper uh, on the road somewhere, and uh, he invited uh, invited me to come to the national finals. And my wife and I went to the last year. It was in Oklahoma city. No kidding. Charlie couldn't go. And so uh, I went, had a big time, uh, just it blew my mind. Uh, Roy won calf roping that year. And uh, it was back when all of them were, uh, it just started watching Jane Fonda yoga, uh, yoga tapes. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was when the, and we talked about it earlier, it's when it became an 
uh, a sport of athletes. You know, the, the old cowboy was fading. Uh, the old ranch cowboy that showed up on the weekends and rode uh, farmer bills, bulls. Uh, that was in the past. And, and uh, But we came to Vegas the first year. And uh, we were trying to figure up last night how many we had actually missed. And I, if we missed, if Charlie missed uh, finals in Vegas, it would be in the single digits. Uh, we, we were there every year and we decided then as we got more popular that that was just the prerequisite of an agency is that you're going to book us in a, in a casino in Vegas during the rodeo. And if you couldn't do that, you had a, had a big chance of losing your, your client. And that's so freaking cool. Yeah. <laughs> what, how, where, so did, but prior to that, how long had you guys been playing in Vegas um, just as kind of your own tour minus rodeo NFR kind of thing. The, I know the people that are probably listening to the podcast have no idea what I'm talking about, but we actually started going to Vegas when, when we were, we would go out there and film Merv Griffin's show and, and those kind of shows that were, were filmed there. The, the first time that we played and I, I went to work for Charlie in 1973. And I think the first time we actually paid played Vegas uh, the band played at um, Aladdin Theater, and it was early, early. It wasn't even early 80s. It was, yeah, it was early 80s. But uh, we opened up the Aladdin Theater when it was a amphitheater. And uh, a, a small band from Alabama called Alabama Open Force. And <laughs> that, that was actually the first time the quote-unquote CDB played Vegas. And... Uh, and so from that point forward, we started going back and obviously we loved it. We played, you know, we just set up house in, uh, in, in the nugget for years. Uh, we went through all the owners with Steve Wynn and all the different people that, that ran the nugget, but that was kind of the home base for us. And it was our, it was our entry into rodeo because we were downtown. We were across the street from Benny's. Uh, it's where we started meeting all the cowboys, uh, Again, I'm, I'm getting ready to get on a plane tomorrow and come down. I, I didn't know whether I was going to be able to come or not. and uh, I just I've got to be there. I just got to go down there. It's uh, we were laughing. We, we would play two weeks sometimes at a time at Bally's. And uh, we have like Tanya Tucker opening for us. And so we had every calf roper. We had the Tommy guys and we had Joe Beaver and had Roy Cooper. And I mean, it just. It was, uh, we had an all-star review backstage every night after the rodeo at Valley's. And so, you know, that's where this creation of, I mean, obviously Charlie had a love for uh, the rural areas and cattle and horses and things. But as we got involved in rodeo, uh, it just became a part of our lives. And, uh, and we got to do a lot of really, really interesting things uh, through rodeo. Obviously, with the relationship with Skull and Copenhagen, uh, brought us a lot of opportunities. We did the Mile Mile City Bucking Horse Sale, uh, where Charlie did a, a match roping with uh, Charlie and and uh, um, it was Charlie and Walt roped against Walt headed Charlie healed, and they did a match roping against Larry Mahan and Bud Polly, nice. and uh, and Charlie and Walt won, and so that was. That was, uh, we just, there was many things that we got to be a part of because of the rodeo. Yeah. Okay. So you brought up the Aladdin just for those that are listening and you're not aware of the many changing uh, structures of Vegas. That is where planet Hollywood currently is. So, um, but definitely classic place. And then you brought up what you're coming to Texas for. Can you touch on what's going on at Billy Bob's with Pam Minnick, the whole crew for Charlie in this, this, uh, great, uh, situation. Well, you know, to be honest and, and, and candid, I, I don't know a lot about it. Pam had uh, reached out to me uh, a few months ago, I think, and and asked me if it was, uh, she said, do I have to get permission to honor Charlie? And it's like, uh, for God's sakes, no. You know, we, you know, obviously Billy Minnick and we've known Pam for years. And, and uh, so I don't know a lot about it. I know that she's brought in uh, uh a group of fiddle players to do some tributes. And, uh, and again, by being on the phone, I'd actually called Pat and to ask Pat about 
coming down and, and had shared with him about it. And so I think it all evolved as far as at least us coming down and, and you guys being a part of it too. So I'm excited. I understand there's a, one of the songwriters that used to write for Charlie's publishing company, uh, Tom Snyder is going to play and do a few of his songs, but uh, wow. I'm, uh, I'm excited to, to come down and obviously honored to be invited and, I hope I can sit through it. It's hard. Oh, man. It was hard uh, seeing him on the screen last night when the Cowboys were bringing the hats out. It's, uh, it was such a – rodeo was such an intricate – rodeo in the military, and, and I saw a piece last night on TV where you guys had taken some of the Cowboys out to shoot a, a, a range uh, with some military guys and stuff, and it just – it was inspiring and it was warm. It felt great to see that rodeo and military, which is, I think I posted the other day on LinkedIn. I said, music and military is what I do. You know, that's, that's my world. And, and you guys obviously are, are capturing it this week. And uh, so I'm looking forward to a few days in, in Texas. I know it won't be the same going to NFR without Charlie, David, but enjoy as best you can. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about how the Volunteer Jam came together. The next generation of rodeo stars will compete at the Junior World Finals presented by Yeti. From December 3rd through 12th at the Wrangler Rodeo Arena inside the Countdown Coliseum at the famous Fort Worth Stockyards, more than 750 youth contestants will compete for titles in nine events. Bull riding, team roping, tie-down roping, steer wrestling, barrel racing, breakaway, pole bending, mini saddle bronc riding, and mini bareback riding. Competition start at 7.30 a.m. daily and admission is just 10 bucks. Visit NFRExperience.com for details. Hey, this is Tracy Lawrence, and you're here with us on NFR Extra. They call me a redneck, a reckon that I am, but this thing's going on. We are here with longtime manager of Charlie Daniels, David Corlew. Corlew was instrumental in helping to bring the Charlie Daniels band overseas to Baghdad for a tour of American bases, which resulted in a 2007 live album on the singer's label, Blues Hat Records. The Volunteer Jam. You know, we're, there's a kind of million things we can talk about about Charlie, but the Volunteer Jam is something that is diverse in its approach and all those that are involved. Can you, for those that are listening and that maybe never got to experience it or have heard about it, can you talk a little bit more about the Volunteer Jam and, and the different artists that were involved and, and kind of the, the, the proceeds, just the whole, the, the elevator pitch of, of the volunteer jam. You know, last night um, I was sharing with somebody and we were talking about Roy Cooper and how innovative he was in calf roping. Well, the volunteer jam was an innovative uh, piece that, that Charlie, I thought brought along to music business. And, and that was that uh, he'd grown up in nightclubs and loved to jam where you just, uh, came off with a shuffle or, or some kind of uh, three, four time and, and you would play and in nightclubs and you would play for, you know, for hours and hours and just jam and, and go from one song to the other. And so I had went to work for Charlie in 1973. Uh, we were, we were playing uh, uh, small, small venues. I know we played in Wilmington, North Carolina earlier that year. That was his hometown. I think there were 16 people that showed up. Uh, 12 of them were kin to Charlie. Uh, so we were working small clubs and we decided that in 1974, we were going to play a homecoming concert in Nashville. And it was a 2000 seat venue. And you would have thought we were going to sell out Madison square garden. 2000 people was just unbelievable to us. And we put tickets on sale and we were in the middle of doing an album in Macon, Georgia at Capricorn and the album was Fire on the Mountain, which had South's Gonna Do It. It had Long-Haired Country Boy, had Trudy. It was, it was really the first big record that Charlie had. But we wanted to add some live cuts to it. So Charlie said, Let's, why don't we record the, the show that we're going to play? We were playing in the War Memorial Auditorium. Mm-hmm. And um, so and he decided, he said, I'm going to invite a few friends up. So we invited... 
Dicky Betts from the Allman Brothers. I think J-Mo, one of the drummers, came up. We invited a couple of the guys from the Marshall Tucker Band to come up. And um, and so we did our regular set, our regular hour set. And then Charlie said, let's jam. And so they started jamming. And, you know, I think we went on at 9.30. We were supposed to play till 11. I think we played till like 1.30, you know. Holy cow. We just had so much fun. Uh, and just having our friends there. And so the next year, Charlie said, and, and we named it the Volunteer Jam, of course, Tennessee being the volunteer state. And, uh, and so we called it, we, we pinned it the Volunteer Jam. And so the next year we went to a 12,000 seat or 8,000 seat venue at MTSU and had, again, had the Marshall Tucker Band come, Dickie Betts, uh, Chuck Lavelle, who was, with the Allman Brothers at the time. Now he's with the Rolling Stones and has been for the last 10 or 12 years. But Chuck came and Jimmy Hall uh, from Wet Willie, who is with Hank Jr. now. And, and so we had 23 performers show that night, the jam. And so then the next year we moved to the Municipal Auditorium, which was a 11,000 seat venue. And so it just started to build. And we created, it got to a point where we were starting at 630 in the afternoon and, and we would, we would play till, I don't know, 12 or one in the morning and we'd have up to 40 or 50 acts every night. And, um, and it just became a, the premier event in the South. And uh, we had everybody from Skinner to the Allman Brothers, to Billy Joel, to Pete Fountain, to Roy Acuff, to James Brown, I mean, we would just invite a, a list. We would do, there would probably be a, a 50 to 60 songs performed in, in one evening. Man, that sounds awesome. Ooh. Obviously, we did that for quite a few years. We did it for 16 years or so. And, and then the Texas Jam came along and the Alabama Jam came along. And then it became a, it lost its uniqueness. So yeah. we decided to quit for a few years when it got up into the nineties. You were talking about the deal with, um, uh, remind me the name again, the veteran deal that you get, that Charlie was doing, you and Charlie were doing. Um, our, uh, our the, project, <clears throat> the project, project homecoming. Uh, no, the journey home project. Journey Home Project. Thank you. And what it what had happened, where that came from is, and, and I won't it's it's a long story, but I'll make it short. Uh first time we went to we played every military base during the Cold War that there was. And uh, uh during during the eighties, we played all over Europe and everywhere, Cuba, we went everywhere. When they knocked the trade towers down, Charlie was one of the first artists to go downrange. So in two thousand five <clears throat> we went to Iraq. I bought a, we were going to take a film crew and, um, and we lost one of our Blackhawks that we were going to haul the crew in. And so I did what any self-respecting hillbilly would do. I went out and bought me a camera. And so <laughs> I went and shot a bunch of bad footage in Iraq and was zooming in and zooming out. But ultimately fast forward and I ended up uh, staying with the film stuff. I actually have a documentary company now, but, uh, I created a, a documentary for GAC. It was called A Journey Home, A Soldier's Story. And that's where we got the name from. But what had happened over the years, during the, the, the years after the Trade Towers came down, we raised money for uh, a lot of different foundations, uh, Sentinels of Freedom, a Task Force Dagger, Wounded Warriors. We were raising money for other people. And some of the organizations were maybe not using the money correctly and, and like there should be. So we just decided if we're going to raise money in Charlie's name, and if what we want to do is one, be good stewards of that money and then be able to let people know where their money goes. So we just said, heck, let's just start our own foundation. So we had a good name for it, the journey home, because we feel like that's what it is. And so it was based on uh the reintegration of uh, uh, to rehabilitate, to return, to rehabilitate, to reintegrate uh, a veteran back into civilian life, which is not an easy task uh, no. for the, for the soldier himself or herself. Yeah, and yeah. for the families and everything too. That's that's incredible. 
there's got to be some just some great stories that people that have been affected by that on a positive note you know that that that's helped that'd be interesting to to see but it's great you know we have uh actually we're getting ready because of the passing of charlie and we're we're restructuring the board and and and, and figuring out uh, different ways to keep it going and uh and we're getting ready to do a short film piece and, and interview some of the kids that we've walked through school i mean we've got kids that we got into college and then they got their masters and uh, most of them have left the nest, the early ones that came on board with us. But, you know, we've got one kid that uh, was a, a multi-deployment uh, uh, veteran, and he's now down in Puerto Rico with DEA. We've got one that's working at DevGrew with the SEAL teams now as a physical therapist. And so we just, we have some good, we do. Uh, Steve, you're exactly right. We've got some wonderful, wonderful stories. Uh, some some guys don't do so well. Uh, we have some tragedies too, but uh, for the most part, we have we have some wonderful uh, success stories, and we stay close to them. We monitor them and like to stay close, and you know we're always a call away if they need us for anything. How did so this it goes right into he's a, he was a part of that Stars and Stripes tour. Did did you did did he do that more than once, or was it just the one time that he did it? Well, there's there, there's a lady by the name of Judy Seal who had a company called Stars Four Stripes. I assume that's what you're asking me about. Yep. Uh, it was like a boutique USO. Uh, we we had known Judy from working just international dates, and and she had always worked military bases as her her gift to the military. And so we we started working with her. So we never we did some USO things. Uh, but primarily we worked with Judy Seal, who was stars for stripes. And, uh, so we went to, I mean, I went to Iraq three times with Charlie, uh, Jeez. Uh, 2005, 2007 and 2009. But I got, I, when I went over there, I kind of got hooked on the adrenaline deal and I kept going back and figuring out places to go back. And I worked on some film projects, um, and I worked as a technical advisor. I worked as a second unit camera guy. And so I ended up going to Iraq nine times, uh, Afghanistan three, uh, Kosovo, Bosnia. So I, I kind of got hooked on the deal. And I, my last trip was 2014 in Afghanistan. Uh, I did some logistics stuff. I moved a bunch of gear around in Afghanistan for uh, a month or so there. But uh, yeah, not that, but, not not that those are any of those are really safe places, but Iraq and Oh five and seven and nine were especially like Oh five in Iraq was, that was really hot time to be over there. Yeah, it was insane. We had actually, you know, the, 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 um, you know, Fallujah was a hotbed for you guys for Marines and, and we had actually headed, we were headed towards Fallujah. We were going to, what we would do is base out of, we would fly into Baghdad and do a concert in Baghdad that night you know, on one of the fobs, one of the bases. Uh, but during the day, while the crew was setting up, we would take a, a what we would call, or as they say in the Western world, uh, the cowboy business would take a short crew. And we would jump on a couple of Blackhawks with guitars and we'd go out and hit three or four fobs, forward operating bases, and just do guitar. I mean, we'd go to uh, forward operating bases that had, you know, 50, 75 <laughs> guys there. And, uh, they weren't taking anybody on the ground then because the IEDs were uh, so prevalent. And uh, so we choppered everywhere, uh, had three or four Black Hawks, and we were jumping power lines. That was when they, they figured out that they could fly low enough. Uh, Iraqis were horrible shots, and the, the closer you were to the ground, the harder you were to hit. So uh, we did a lot of roller coaster rides all over Iraq during 05 and 07. Wow. Jeez. Oh, Charlie loved it, man. He, you know, he would, uh, I remember one night in, um, uh, in, um, uh, uh, John, Camp Arif John, which is actually in Kuwait, but, but he did it every night. He would tell everybody there, if you want to autograph or you like to talk to me after the show, get in line and I'll see you. And our shows would be over at like, you know, uh, 1900, uh, you know, nine, 10 o'clock, 
eight or nine o'clock and we would we would sit there till three or four o'clock in the morning and he would sign up to three four five thousand autographs a night and you know no time for sleep we would just you know we'd roll, go get our stuff roll our beds so to speak and and uh and move to another ford operating base and do it all over again jeez and for an old for a guy that was in his 70s then um you know those those 60s and 70s it, it, was, it was hard on him uh, but he loved it. He loved every minute of it. And uh, we would see, it, you know, from that point forward, after they shut down Iraq in 2011, um, you know, we'd run into security guys and go, man, I saw you and, you know, and, and uh, Nazaria, or I saw you, you know, Honda or somewhere, you know, we, 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 we continue to run into people that uh, saw us there. So I'm trying to connect some dots here, David. I- I've actually listened to Charlie talk about when he was growing up uh, in the Carolinas, and this is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but World War II, right? And he was a kid, and, and the boats were coming in. This is where it impacted him, right? Is that where this kind of... Yeah, it was. he was impacted. Obviously, he uh, was listening to the radio when they bombed today, uh, yep. December 7th. He was, they were listening to the radio. They gathered around the radio. Obviously, they had no TV. And you remember when Pearl Harbor was being bombed, but he also, you know, my favorite story was the one where, you know, as I know schools are screwed up now and I don't know when they go or when they get out or they go all year. But when we were kids, you got out at the end of May. And so June was, you know, party month, if you were a kid in the South. And um, he said the first week of June, you know, he's asleep on a Wednesday morning, uh, gets to sleep in, you know, he doesn't have to get up at the crack of dawn and his mother wakes him up and says, Charles, uh, we're going to church. And he goes, mama, you know, we don't, we don't go to church on Wednesday mornings. And she said, yeah, we do today. We're going to go pray for the soldiers that are landing on D- on Normandy beach. And so he had to get up at eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning, put his clothes on, go to church and pray. for. So that was when the country was so, you know, adhesive that we were so together and it, the war effort was a combination of, Every, everyone fought the war. Citizens, uh, military, factory workers, everybody was all in for it. And so that, that impacted him. And living in Wilmington was a port city. And uh, he said that you could see the ships being uh, bombed off the coast by German U-boats when he was a kid. So that really impacted him. So um, he never got to serve. His eyesight was bad. And you know, he had some defects, and so he was he was too old for Vietnam, uh, obviously too young for the Korean War, too old for Vietnam. And um, but he he paid back. Uh, he served. Yeah, the body awesome. of what you with him and the team. Yeah, he served many times over, it seems like. Yeah, I have guys all the time tell me, said, hell, you've been to more more forward operating bases downrange than they have. I mean, we just, we, we did it ever. We did it a lot. We did it a lot. And then, you know, obviously went to Kosovo and Bosnia and uh, went to Guantanamo Bay a few times, even after they opened up the, you know, when they were holding Al Qaeda and, and the Taliban down there, Charlie wanted to go down and see that. So obviously we jumped on plane, went down there. Uh, Cause there was so much press saying we were mistreating them and, you know, it was horrible. Charlie said, I want to see that. So we went down and obviously there was, you know, they were living better than they'd ever lived in their lives. Um, yeah. But uh, he loved the military. He loved the military so much. It was uh, a big part of his everyday life. It definitely showed in everything he did. Yeah, this, is, uh, this is a good time to take a break. stagecoach or any country music festival you are treated to 40 to 60 acts culinary delights rides and some great art 
There are a lot of choices, but you have to pack all that fun into two to three days. In 2019, more than 60 artists played Vegas 10-Day Festival, commonly referred to as the National Finals Rodeo. Not on outdoor stages, but in some of the finest theaters and arenas in the country. And you have 10 days to pick. Hmm, let me see. George Strait, Reba, Brooks and Dunn, Cody Johnson. Everything that makes up the NFR experience reads like a festival poster. You can't get a ticket to the big show at the Thomas and Mac? Take in any one of the two dozen viewing parties before you head out to a concert. Or better yet, go to a viewing party that includes a country star after the rodeo. If it seems like there is no end to Vegas ramping up its live music experience, you'd be right. With already more than a dozen great theaters, four arenas, countless showrooms and viewing parties, in 2021, Vegas is upping the ante again. Already newly built is the 65,000-seat Allegiant Stadium with the best sight lines in the NFL and walking distance from 25,000 hotel rooms. Some of the acts that could play the stadium include Taylor Swift, Ed Sheeran, Garth Brooks, and even the Rolling Stones. In 2023, an 18,000-seat visual and acoustical wonderment will open adjacent to the Venetian. The sphere will revolutionize the live music experience. If you like camping in a full community of like-minded music fans, then a country music festival might be the thing. Or you can make the trip to Las Vegas the first two weekends in December and see your favorite country stars as part of your NFR experience. The NFR, the show, and Las Vegas. It don't get no better than that. Hey everybody, this is Aaron Watson, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Co-founder of the Journey Home Project, David Corlew, is here on NFR Extra. In 2014, Charlie Daniels, with David Corlew, founded the Journey Home Project, a 501c3 nonprofit organization that assists other non-for-profits in securing funds to help causes that benefit veterans of the United States Armed Forces. What was that? what was like the initial thought like when you go over there to Iraq the very first time was this like what are we doing here guys yeah especially when you go when you fly into Baghdad and and uh if you have it before they <clears throat> especially during those times 05 06 07 is they do that spiral where it's like a combat role once they get into in the range of Baghdad where there's uh possibility of uh, ground air fire they start in a big spiral and they go down, they drop 5,000 feet at a time and they just drop the bottom out of the C-130s and, uh, and you, you're augering down and they'll, they'll make one circle at, you know, at, at 20,000 feet and then they just completely drop the bottom out of it and they go down to 15,000 feet, another circle and another 5,000 feet. So uh, that's when you're saying, what, what am I doing here? Uh, what's going on here? And obviously there were nights when we would fly back into Baghdad or back into uh, um, Nazaria or whatever Ford operating base we were working out of at night. Uh, We would take a lot of uh, uh, steel fire, uh, steel sight fire, as they call it, small rounds uh, in the helicopters. But uh, we were lucky, never, never had any injuries or anything. Got pretty tight sometimes, but it was uh, um, it was part of the deal, you know. Rock and roll, rock and rollers, you know, they like the adrenaline rush anyway. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> or what? Okay, you're talking about the military side, but there's there's a side that not just the military side. They're just for humankind and the way Charlie rolls, his kindness. Um, we were talking about this earlier, but it, and. Not too much details, but but Shane Miner brought this up, and he said, you know, hey, ask ask about, you know, this um, Starkey's house or something like that in Wichita, Kansas, and you know, I, apparently he was on the road with Charlie, and and this is where you guys went. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Because this this shows a lot of another. Yeah, he was always Charlie was such a giving person because he grew up with with uh, such little like meager uh, means. He had nothing. And, uh, and so he's, uh, um, 
he always had a heart and he had a heart for those that were downtrodden. And uh, the Sharkey house was a house for uh, mentally challenged uh, kids and, and young adults. And he got involved with that with actually with Johnny Western, the old, well, we met Johnny Western and the Cheyenne at the, uh, uh, the Great America is a uh, Great America truck stops in Cheyenne. Uh, so Johnny Western's the guy that sang all the theme songs to Paladin and all those old westerns and stuff. And so Johnny Western would perform at that truck stop, and we got to know him. And he was involved with the Sharky House, and so uh, a Starkey House. I'm sorry, um, but uh, that's how we got involved. And then he later on was involved with the a place in Tampa, Florida called the Angelus. And uh, as we talked about earlier, he's, you know, it's families will adopt uh, mentally challenged kids. Uh, but when they get to be adults, they, they don't have a place, they don't have a home. And that's what the Angelus did. They provided home and, and uh, for these kind of people that were s struggling. And these are people that had severe uh, deformities and, and and mental challenges and man, oh Charlie was like we used to, and I say this, and I and I'm not saying it lightly, but it, it uh, he was like a Pied Piper. You would see him come backstage, and there would be people walking. You know, he would. We brought a lot of these people backstage, and in, in, in every city, and he just had he had this heart of a Pied Piper. I mean, people just flocked to him, especially the downtrodden, and then he he welcomed them with open arms. That was the beauty of Charlie Daniels is that his heart, his heart was as big as all outdoors. It was just, uh, uh, you know, he just, he was so giving, you know, that's, he spent a big part of his day giving, whether it was mentally, physically, uh, he just was a wonderful guy. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. He cared, he cared, um, he cared about people. He cared about humanity. Yeah. That's impressive. That's something that uh, you kind of wish you could see more of now. You know, I mean, we need somebody, need somebody like that in these dark times. It seems like that we're, you know, I mean, everybody tries to be super optimistic and everything like that, but you know, somebody like that, it's like it, not that hard times don't affect them, but it's like, you know, just that Pied Piper analogy of like, Oh my gosh, there's this guy's like, you know, the, I guess charisma or charismatic or whatever it would be that j just completely lures people in. Yeah, he was a, he was a, he's he was one of a kind, that's for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's you know, and we look at it like uh, you know, kind of talking with you um about this towards like, oh man, he was Charlie Daniels, he's a great, you know, this and that, but it's like obviously the friendship. It's like, man, sorry for sorry for the loss of your friend, because that was a I mean, he meant a lot of meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah, he did. He impacted a lot of people and and um you would see that, you know, we would, you would see people from time to time. And, and especially during the time when, when he did pass away, we had, we were just flooded with calls of people and people that he helped that we never knew about. Obviously there were the things that the administrative part of the office dealt with. We dealt with a lot of his donations and obviously with the, the, the journey home project, we knew a lot of what he did, but man, there was a lot, um, uh, he filled a church chapel up one, one Christmas with, he got somebody, we don't even know who did it. Um, he reached out to somebody and they got a tractor rig and he sent them down to Kroger's or one of the warehouses and filled it up full of groceries and backed it up to a church somewhere and unloaded it into the chapel and never took any credit for it. We found about it later, found out about it later. Jeez. Um, Hold on, David. So you're saying that he did, that's why I think it's funny it's funny in a good hearted way that he would do just crazy random acts of kindness. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's so cool. Exactly. So cool. And he would, uh, I mean, he would, I've seen him time and time again, you know, uh, people on the streets and stuff that are struggling. He'd pull out a couple hundred bucks, walk over and give it to them. And, you know, they're, they're asking for dollar bills and, you know, Charlie lays three or $400 on them and, you know, and a lot of people go, you shouldn't help those guys. You know, they, you know, they're making a living doing that and stuff, but Charlie didn't, he didn't believe that. He just, if they were out asking for money, they were having a tough time, you know, 
Charlie wasn't there to yeah. judge whether they deserved it or not, or whether, whether even if they needed it or not, uh, he wasn't going to pass the opportunity to help someone. He wasn't going to let that go by. Gratitude, uh, man. Man. Yeah, he, he dang sure knew where he was going when he passed away. Oh, uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. He put his time in. Yeah, he did. So can we, I, this is something I want to talk to because I, <clears throat> this is the impressive part, I think, for the, the side that um, I work on, on the digital media side. Um, and, I, and I think there's some more information to this, but he's alive and well when it comes to digital media. I mean, it, you know, whether it be when he was managing his own Twitter account or what you as a team have done with every bit of the history of Charlie Daniels band, how, where did you, as a team, when did you start embracing this? Hey, you know what? Well, yeah, we could write good music and hopefully people buy it or we want to get, you just started evolving what you already did to the masses using the kind of the, the, the content management systems out there. How did, how did this whole digital media thing come about? Well, you know what? He went scratching and screaming. Uh, uh, MySpace, I think, was the first one of the first formats, and and he didn't like that because people could buy ad space around him, and so he didn't like that at all. So he didn't like social media. His son Charlie Jr. is the one that brought him to Twitter, and 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 created that platform for him. Uh, to where he could he could talk politically and uh, hey Tuffy uh, he could talk politically and uh, share his thoughts of, about his faith and about his politics and uh, so little Charlie as we call him um, uh, brought him to Twitter and then when he realized when Charlie caught on and realized uh, the, the the extras that came along with that, obviously his, his soapbox and being able to share his feelings and thoughts about certain things. But then with the music and we realized we were able to relaunch music and share our old music. We've got, you know, we've got footage. We have a, 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 a vault full of volunteer jams and I've got a pristine 55 minute set of Stevie Ray Vaughan and, Almond Brothers and Skinnerd and stuff. So all of a sudden we realized that we had this, this uh, platform to share our old music as well as new music. And, you know, it's like we don't, uh, Devil obviously is a big copyright and it gets rewritten and recopied and played and played and played. But it's, uh, but you know, it's been, it's been wonderful. It was a great place for him to share his stories and share his opinions and stuff. And man, he got hammered pretty bad too about some of his faith, his, his religion and his, uh, uh, his political beliefs, but you know, he'd let it run off his back. I, when I finally got on Twitter through journey home project, I wasn't a social media guy. And I started saying some of the stuff people said to him and I told him, I said, man, don't you want to just like pull out of this thing? You know, it's not fair for them to say the things they say about you. And he goes, look, you know, I'll read it. You know, I don't read it. Number one and number two is that if they don't like what I'm saying. They don't have, you know, they don't have to read it. So, um, but it, it really created a, a platform for him. And, you know, he had over a million followers on Twitter alone. And, um, and we're maintaining that little Charlie is, is continuing to do his, uh, do his Twitter. And, and, and obviously we don't have the stories, but, he's able to go back and dig up a lot of things that he had written that he had not shared before. So, you know, it's a very vibrant site, the Facebook and, and Instagram, and uh, they move an enormous amount of merchandise and things on that. And it, it you know, kind of keeps Charlie alive. Um, keeps, keeps things moving, keeps him very upfront and forward. Yeah, it does. I mean, you're, I mean, we're, there's hundreds of thousands certain platforms, millions of listeners on another platform. Yeah. And it's, it's an testament to what everything we've just been talking about, about who he is and how it resonates and just keeps to continue to grow, even though he's not here on this, this uh, planet anymore. Yeah. We did a duets record. I don't know, years ago. I don't, know, I don't even know how many years, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And, and uh, um, and we're getting ready to re-release it because it never got any attention, but we got duets with Dolly Parton and Gretchen Wilson and uh, Brad Paisley. We got, we got uh, some tracks of Brad Paisley and Charlie jamming with double trouble with Stevie Ray Vaughn's band. 
And uh, it was after, of course, Stevie had passed away, but uh, got duets with Brooks and Dunn. Uh, they did Drinking My Baby Goodbye, Travis Tritt. So we're getting ready to re-release that and through social media and, and through streaming and stuff. So we're excited about that. And then we found some, uh, we found some, some uh, duos that uh, we'd never released before. So we're going to put those out too. So uh, just trying to keep it moving forward and, and want everybody to remember Charlie for obviously his social commentary was one thing, but this, here's, this is a guy that played with Bob Dylan. He played with Leonard Cohen. He, you know, man, there's a great story and I know we're, we're short of time, but then we were, my wife, uh, her, her uncle was a screenwriter and Charlie wanted to learn about screenwriting. And, uh, we were in a restaurant in Los Angeles one night and I went to rest, I went to the restroom and, and I looked over in the, in the bathroom and, and it was George Harrison standing beside me <laughs> at the urinal. And so, um, I went back to the table and I said, Charlie, I said, I just saw George Harrison. He goes, I know George. And I go, <laughs> okay. Uh, so we get up and go over to the table. And before we get to the table, George Harrison goes, wow, there's Charlie Daniels. And it was George Harrison and Jeff Lynn and um, um, Tom Petty. And I guess they were putting together the Wilburys. Wow. Uh, they were having dinner together. And, and when I walked away, I thought, you know, it's cool to know a Beatle, but when a Beatle knows you, you know, that's, that's cool. He played on Ringo's album. He played on a Bob Dylan album with Harrison. Uh, obviously played on three, three, four Bob Dylan records. Uh, you know, this guy was a master guitar player. And, uh, um, and, and nobody knows that. I mean, it's on Lay, 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 uh, Bob Dylan song. I mean, you listen to those uh, chords. They're so abstract, uh, the rhythm chords of that song. Uh, and it's Charlie, Charlie and Fred Carter, Dina Carter's dad. Nice. Did all the guitar on Nashville skyline. That is so crazy. Yeah. He's, he, he was just, and then he did all the fiddle parts on the Marshall Tucker albums and played on a couple of Skinnerd records. And, you know, he just, uh, there's a song called, uh, this ain't going to be the first time this old cowboy spent the night alone by the Marshall Tucker band. And, Charlie and Andy Stein, who was the fiddle player for Commander Cody, they did all the fiddle parts for that album, and it's 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 genius. It's just genius. Uh, and you know, and that's been the gifts. I got to sit in those sessions and got to hear him, uh, got to hear him put those tracks down and do those things. It's you know, it's just gift after gift after gift that we were given from Charlie. Uh, he involved awesome. everybody. He involved everybody. Man, he sure is special. Guys, let's take one last break. NFR Extra follows cowboys, talks to legends and country stars, and finds the stories that make up the season that leads to the annual showdown in December. Follow me, Nevada Caldwell, Brylan Bentley, and Steve Goder as we delve deep into the stories in and behind the road to gold. Listen to NFR Extra on Rural Radio, channel 147 on Sirius XM, every Monday at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern, with our re-air Tuesday in the same time slot. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. This is Shane Miner, and you're joining me on NFR Extra. We're back with David Corlew, the Nashville music industry veteran, was honored by the U.S. military personnel at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where he was named an honorary member of the 187th Airborne Infantry Regiment, also known as the Rakasans. Take your bet, you're going to regret, because I'm the best as ever been. Johnny, you're up your bow and play your fiddle do you mind sharing just, I don't want to put you on the spot, but it's just more of. Then don't. <laughs> yeah. You said it best, don't do it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking, what has it been like being in your seat, being a part? I mean, you kind of just barely touch on it, but what has it been for you personally in the journey that you've been, as you said, 47 plus years hanging with Charlie? What is it? What, what can you kind of just, touch on your experience, what it's been like. It's epic. It's, uh, it's epic proportions. Uh, 
I grew up uh, in a tough, tough side of Nashville. Grew up on the streets. Uh, Ten of us in a two-bedroom house. Uh, uh, 10th grade education and uh, was struggling in the 70s, 71, 72. And uh, Charlie gave me a job. Uh, I ran into him in a record store. And he asked if I knew anybody that wanted to drive a van and set up equipment. And at the time, it was he had six band members and had one guy that 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 worked on the road crew. And I took that job in 1973 for $50 a week and $5 a day per damn. And I literally have uh, uh, seen the world, uh, not only through the uh, windshield of a Chevrolet van, but I've flown on private jets around the world and I've met presidents and I've uh, been to combat zones. I've sat at campfires with uh, some of the most legendary cowboys. I've knew Casey Tibbs. I, I, you know, it's just, I go to the national finals. I get to meet guys like you. Uh, I've just had, I've had a life that y- you could never imagine. Um, I've, um, it just, I was thinking about it last night. I was thinking about it last night. What a wonderful life it's been and, and all the things I've got to do. And, um, and it's all because of him. And he, I, I, Charlie taught me that it was okay to be uh, a country boy, to be who you were. And you didn't have to have any shiny objects, so to speak you could be who you were and, and be an honorable person. And he, it was a lot of guys like me. I wasn't the only one. I mean, he, he scraped the gutters and picked us all up and dusted us off and gave us a place in life. And, uh, and like I say, I've done things that you can, you just can't even imagine. And, um, um, I'll always be, uh, never be sufficiently, uh, grateful enough. I don't think for what he gave me, um, uh, I worked for it. Uh, we all did. We all, we had a common goal. You know, it was, you know, the, and that's what it is about that. I think comes with cowboying. It comes with the military. It's about the team and the team never quits. And so you go through hard times, go through tough times. And that's why, uh, that's why today that, uh, that I deal with a, a form of PTS because it, uh, I spent 47 years on a part of a team and now it's gone. And now I'm a, I'm a regular guy. I'm back to being just David Corley again, Charlie's not here anymore. And so, uh, uh, it's, uh, I'm having to, I'm, I'm learning a new life, uh, in the latter, latter part of my life. So, uh, I miss him every day, but I have so many memories. I have so many memories of, uh, of um, Charlie and, and the things that we did. I mean, man, I said I was a Yankees fan in the fifties and early sixties. I mean, the, I went to Mickey Mantle's birthday party. <laughs> I mean, how, how does it get any better than that? I met Whitey Ford and Bobby Richardson and I met all these guys. And I mean, I, I grew up watching the sixties the Yankees and going to New York would have been like going to the moon. And man, I sat in the, in the dugout at Yankee stadium during batting practice when Don Mattingly's pitching and I sat with Frank Howard and watched him knock ball after ball over the fence at Yankee Stadium. And I'm going, just doesn't get any better than this. You know, mm-hmm. I've got to meet Tough Heaterman and I've got to meet Roy Cooper. I've got to meet Casey Tibbs. I knew Jim Shoulders. And all, I mean, I, I've got to be a part of all the things that kids dream of. And uh, that was all because of Charlie. You know, mm-hmm. big Charlie just. Here he goes through life, dragging a bunch of no counts with him. And, and, you know, I can sit here and talk for hours, days. Uh, I've got some yeah. good stories. <laughs> I've got some stories that, that I can only tell in close company. Uh, but it's, um, uh, you know, a life well lived, Charlie. Um, and thanks for sharing it. I mean, that's what he did. He shared his life with us. And that's that's what's special. Uh. Oh, no, Steve's got some things. I know he does because I'd always step in front of him. Sorry, Steve. But I just, I'm All right. people listening to you, Dave, talk about this. I think it's cool because the listeners we have and they get to hear this. It's uh, not that they already didn't know, you know what Charlie does for the business or anything, but I think the deep dive that you just shared is pretty damn special. 
It was great. Yeah, we got to, man, I've got pictures uh, when we, when uh, uh, Mike, uh, what was Mike's name, that ran the PRCA Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs, when Casey Tibbs was found out they had cancer, they wanted to erect that statue out in front of the Hall of Fame. And they, we were the first people they reached out to. Um, and Lewis Cryer was the chairman then. And uh, we put on a big fundraiser in uh, Beverly Hills. And we invited all the cowboys. We had Dick Farnsworth and, and um, uh, we had Dick Farnsworth and Denver Powell and Wilford Brimley and Casey Tibbs and Ben Johnson. And we just had all these old famous Western cowboys and we raised, I don't know, five or $600,000 that night and got that statue started uh, that's in front of the PRCA now uh, with uh, Casey riding necktie. Mm. And uh, so, man, I mean, I spent some crazy nights with Casey Tibbs and, and uh, just these legends. And, and they're all the things that I love, too. Uh, Charlie, um, I introduced Charlie uh uh, when I was in high school, I started reading Louis L'Amour books. And so one day, like in the late seventies, I told Charlie, I said, you ever heard of Louis L'Amour? And he goes, no, and Charlie just started just consuming Louis L'Amour books. And so he decided to name an album, how lonesome after one of Louis's books. And they said, well, we got to get his permission. So, I mean, he was like bigger. I mean, he was like, this guy sold a hundred million books. Louis L'Amour did. And and uh, so me and Charlie were like kids. We were in Charlie's living room. We said, we got to call him. So we, we thought we were calling Bantam Books, but somebody had given us his home number. And, you know, Charlie hands me the phone and said, you asked for him. And I go, okay. So I call him. I said, I need to speak to Louis Moore. And he goes, this is Louis. And I'm just like, I was like a kid, like Elvis. It was like, ah. <laughs> and we become really good friends with Louis. Um, I mean, Elvis Presley cut one of Charlie's songs. I mean, doesn't get any better than that. You know, it was on the flip side of kissing cousin. It called, it's called, it hurts me. So Charlie never cashed the first royalty check he got from Elvis. Uh, it's still framed. We still got it in the office. Uh, he never cashed it. He just framed it. And, uh, so, and this guy lived a full life. Uh, so it was obviously we're sad that he's gone and we miss him every day. And but man, uh, a life well lived, sir. Yeah. And he shared it. Yeah. He Nothing left under there. I tell you what, it'd be, I mean, it's so cool to hear the legacy that he left behind and all the things that he's done for so many people. But I, as a Charlie Daniels fan myself, would love to hear some like of the 80s, you know, late 70s, 80s sort of stuff. Not that we got to go to do that now, but maybe, <laughs> maybe someday I can catch up because I oh, bet that, you that would be let's wild. Do let's just plan on that. We'll, We'll make a circle at some bar and uh, get them out enough to keep it open long enough that I can get them all out. Uh, I'm already excited. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it was. Uh, there were some wild times, and and those fell by the wayside. And you know, we locked into it as a business, and so for 47 years, we feel like we built somewhat of a small empire. And and it, but it was an empire based on doing what we wanted to do. And we had our own record label. We had our own publishing company. We had our own concessions. We got to where we didn't want to ask anybody for anything. So mm -hmm. I still have the record label. I'm going to keep running it. Uh, so that was our goal is that we didn't have to ask anybody from New York or Los Angeles. Can we record this song or that song? Can we do this? Or maybe if we do that, it's going to make somebody mad. We did what we wanted to do tried to never step on anybody's toes, tried to be honorable with our word. You know, Louis L'Amour taught us that, you know, there, there were thousands of head of cattle, millions of cattle moved across this country during the 1800s, just on a handshake. So Charlie had a book, his book, his autobiography is called Never Look at the Empty Seats. And, and in the forward of the book he writes, and that's what he says, he said, from time to time, young kids, come up to me and ask me for advice. And he said, it really gets down to three things. And he goes that uh, um, the three things that I always tell him was that to honor a handshake, <coughs> excuse me, honor a handshake. The second thing is to be true to your word and be true to your art. And the third thing was never look at the empty seats. 
And so when he played, when we started out, if there were 10 people there, he looked at those 10 people and he worked for those 10 people like it was Madison Square Gardens. And then when he got up to when there were bigger venues, but that was, uh, I thought, a, a wonderful, it was a brilliant phrase, never look at the empty seats. And, and that's, how it, that's how he lived life. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, Dave, I mean, yeah, we've been we've been chatting for a while here. This is uh could keep on doing it, but uh <coughs> Yeah, I gotta go feed some cattle. It's <laughs> getting hard. <laughs> well, seriously, thank you for coming on. I mean, I'm I'm always like a little boy just listening to your stories and um just enjoying and, and feeling very blessed to hear A U Charlie, et cetera, et cetera. So we can do a, we can do a volume two. Yes, for sure. Do a volume two. Thank you, Steve. It was nice to meet you. Yes, Thank sir. You. Likewise. I look forward to seeing you. Simplify. Simplifidelis. Uh, uh, you guys take care, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Texas tomorrow and see some rodeo. Outstanding. All right. Take look care. forward to it. Yes, sir. Take care. God bless. We'd like to thank David Corlew for hanging out with us on NFR Extra. Want to experience more of NFR? Then visit NFRExperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've heard on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a big five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. NFR Extra. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. And the bulls and the browns And the ladies in the skin-tight wrangers And the cowboy hats